Hello and welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jesse Billington, and I'm joined as always by the shiny little ball to my roulette wheel, Timo Albus Daly, and the valve cover to my floor pan, Ellie Mae Taylor. How are you both? I already feel violated when I'm even 10 seconds in. <laughs> All I said was you're a shiny little ball. What's wrong with that? It was more the pairing with whatever monstrosity you called Ellie Mae just there. It didn't sound right. Valve cover to my floor pan. Did you not see FP1? Well, no, actually, I, I did, but did, I didn't need like... the... Uh, well, no, actually, that's fair. I didn't see it live because who the hell would? Not even the fans got the opportunity for us to do it anyway. But yeah, no, I'm good anyway. I'm just going to score a line swiftly under that. And anyway, how are you? Please talk. I'm good, thank you. No qualms about of... being called a valve cover? No, I sort of got stuck on the bit where Timo's a little ball. Shiny little ball, like the little one you put into the roulette wheel and you spin it around and put it all on red, put it all on red ball, more like. Um, anyway, yes, as you might have guessed, we're back to review all the action from this weekend's Las Vegas Grand Prix. And we'll be taking a look back at, well, we haven't actually got any of the real news from this weekend. There's quite a lot to actually pick apart from Las Vegas. And I think a lot of bits we want to discuss. So um, we'll launch straight into the weekend with the opening gambit, which was Jacques Villeneuve getting married in the paddock. We had mentioned beforehand that there was a tiny chapel of love that had been set up in, like, actually in the paddock itself. And um, Jacques tied the knot with his partner, Julia, in the chapel of love. And uh, the couple were treated to an intro of the F1 theme. So as they walked in, um, they obviously had the F1 theme march them in, followed by the traditional Wagner's bridal chorus, with proceedings being overseen by an Elvis impersonator. So very much the the stereotypical Las Vegas wedding with a slight Formula 1 twist. If anyone was going to... He got paid to get married in the paddock, no? Is that, I mean, again, I know what you're saying there, I'm about to say that like, if anyone was going to do it, it does make sense that, of course, it's real enough, but really, yeah, that loaf of cash that you're going to get married in, like, if he's done that for free, I feel like that's a missed opportunity on his part, but really, that's where you're going to get married? Really? <laughs> Why not? I mean, who else has got married in an F1 circuit as F1 is going on? No one, because no one's ever thought that's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. I sort of side well, with Timo, I sort of side with Ellie May. If you're the 1997 F1 world champion, obviously a yeah, huge you've got to stay somehow because no one cares what you think right now anyway these days because True. it just comes up with crazy and crazier things. But at the same time, man, just... It's not my style of wedding. down a notch. It's, it's not my style of wedding. I wouldn't opt to have that. If it's what he wanted, I can see that he potentially enjoyed that, even if all of his wedding guests were simply the assembled press. Like, just sort of, you come out and there's Luke Smith and Chris Medlin there going, well done, I guess. we did. This was a surprise thinking, I am so fatigued right now from this weekend. Is this happening or am I hallucinating? No, somehow I've woken up the next day and that did actually happen. They wouldn't have been actual fudge. too fatigued at that point because this was like Thursday night or Friday night, so it was... Yeah, this was. This I'm just was, going to assume they got there on like Tuesday or Wednesday, and the time difference is still messing with them. Oh yeah, I saw a brilliant tweet from Joe Guan Yu talking about the time zooms that he's had to skip through to get to Abu Dhabi. He sort of misspelled his tweet, and which really points out the fact that they've covered like 12 time zones to literally get to Abu Dhabi for the back to back from Vegas to deal with it all. And I think people are going to be arriving in. Abu Dhabi absolutely knackered because equally teams will have been working until sort of three, four o'clock in the morning, stripping down the their paddocks and pens after the Grand Prix. Like on Friday night, Saturday morning, I think that's the right way around the days go. Um, 
like teams would have been still plowing on till nearly five six a.m. doing like debriefs and post FP two stuff. Like th- the times were a bit manic, and I don't think anyone thought that far ahead. With Singapore, because it's a night race, plans are in place for hotels to have twenty four hour food and twenty four hour service, so that the teams can operate on essentially a conventional time zone which just means they happen to sort of be nocturnal at that point. They sort of uh, adapt to a night shift before they even get there. Whereas with Vegas, none of that preparational planning seemed to have been put into place, which was an interesting outcome. You'd also think being in the Northern Hemisphere, it would get dark fairly quickly, would it not? Yeah. Yeah, relatively quickly. Like, I just think the sun sets there about sort of 6, 6.30-ish. So we could have had a race in the dark. Dusk, and you'd have got much the same effect. Yeah, but yeah. it's not as exciting as saying we had it at 10 or at midnight. It's at 6 o'clock. But then who sleeps in Las Vegas? But apparently the locals do, but... Well, you don't get the chance, because even if you did, the fireworks will blow bloody up at the end of it. Yeah, and FP2 went on till like 3.30 in the morning or something ridiculous. But we'll get back to all the timing things because there's a few more points to add into that one. But after Jacques Villeneuve got married, um, obviously we mentioned the Chapel of Love was set up in the pits and paddock. The F1, this was an interesting side of things, F1 actually bought the land that um, turns one, two and everything was situated on and the pit building and the paddock area itself. And they spent $500 million on that pit building, and they forgot to put a media office in it. Every square inch of that GP has been monetized to within an inch of its life, seemingly at the expense of actually being practical to many people. I don't know what life was like for the teams actually on the ground, how much space they had to operate within, where they had to park lorries, where they had to actually store stuff. But when it came to sort of production and media, like there was a commentary off booth, and that was it. Like there was no standard office. Like any man like needs a media office anyway. Sport that relies on a huge amount of people writing and producing nah, the, stories the whole, across the whole city is, is is the media office. It's it's just a Vegas thing. You clearly didn't get that press moment. So you just got to work with it in Vegas. That's just part of the charm of the place. They did that on purpose. I like you're beginning to talk like you expect that Las Vegas Grand Prix was not well organised, and I don't know where you're getting these kind of crazy ideas from. It's it's fine. I'm going to do the maximum step, and I'm going to start off really negative at the top of the podcast, and by the end of this, I'm going to be singing Elvis, um, singing along to Elvis Presley in the car, wearing an Elvis Presley inspired race suit, and I'm going to be really optimistic for it and want to go to the club. Over the course of this, as long as we don't have to listen to that, then that's fine. I'm I was going to say the opposite. I was going to say, can you sing Viva Las Vegas? Yeah, and you look clearly very ill. Well, we already knew that. Yeah, that's that's just a long-running thing. But anyway, with obviously expensive pit building aside, there's a few other issues with sort of um, infrastructure around Vegas, shall we say. And one of the footbridges across the circuit failed. This failed quite early on in the weekend. Um, and when I say it failed, it suffered a structural failure and had to be shut to all foot traffic. Um, and this is one of the reasons why they were blocking views on the bridges to avoid overloading. But even with just the increased foot traffic, it seems that some of the bridges clearly weren't rated for that or just hadn't been maintained properly enough to sustain that so it's a little bit concerning there and i think that hopefully the organizers and the uh, civil engineers that put it all together will have learned a lot when it comes to managing that amount of people kicking around was it a footbridge that was already there in vegas or was it a it wasn't i believe it was a footbridge that was already in vegas the details were kind of hazy i got it as sort of like one of those stories that worms its way out of the paddock from sort of quiet team members that don't want to be sort of seen to ruffle feathers but the story gets out and um essentially it was one that was open to the public 
and um yeah just there was all massive people having to then sort of go to other bridges making the situation worse and yeah it was it was a bit of a nightmare there wasn't designated walkways or like cut through channels for press um, team members for videographers photographers camera operators because usually at circuits you've got sort of lots of cut throughs and underground sort of underpasses so you can get to locations to shoot report from interview from operate the tv cameras from there wasn't actually much of that around Vegas. You just had to sort of use the public walkways and then cut in, which, again, not hugely practical when it comes to putting on a, a race and getting it filmed for TV, I don't know, or sort of broadcast from. You, you sort of forgot that you might actually have to show someone the Grand Prix at some point. Well, they did forget about it part way through the kind of the coverage anyway at times of some of the shots they were using of here's a bit of track where something's going to happen and then it doesn't there's about 10 seconds of empty track and then cut back to it later when oh now there's a car there or here's a helicopter shot but you genuinely can't see the shit yeah you when it comes to actually sort of showing you bits this was something that i sort of cropped up for me across the weekend from like the low down angles from looking from trackside look um you could have really been anywhere even from some of the car on boards you could have been it did make me think that employed the monaco tv people to come in and be like do you want a second grand prix yeah it, the, but you could have been any visually you could have been anywhere like there was no significant clues until they cut to a helicopter shot that you're in mm -hmm. vegas like short of when they go past the sphere and everything is bathed in the blue green and red colors of the chrome I'm logo for a second glad you brought up the sphere by the way because i just wanted to interject slightly and i think they missed out on a really good opportunity with that because of all of the things they kept projecting onto the sphere i think during qualifying in particular this would have been excellent at the end of each qualifying session you've got a giant sphere there put the death star on it and then you've got a picture of the driver and then you just beam it to have the beam come out that driver's been eliminated do that five times next one over have a fun star wars crossover because everything else looks a bit odd in the sphere so on, on the cool down perfect lap. for it yeah on the cool down lap after a q1 and q2 the drivers that have been eliminated as they're doing their cool down lap back to the pits the oh, yeah. death star sort of pivots and sort of yeah just don't... takes aim and just again, no, I, I don't hate that as a concept <laughs> We carry on with that with the Hunger Games theme sort of throughout the weekend, and we just have the little music go on, and then just that little like tribute to them on the sphere. Yeah, that one. That would be. Uh, there, there were so many better ways they could have utilized quite a lot of Vegasy stuff, and they sort of failed to, which feels like they sort of almost missed the point of hosting it in Vegas where they did. But, like, like not having an Elvis impersonate to do the um, podium ceremonies. National anthem. But I will say, I did feel like I was getting serenaded by Donny Osmond at quarter to six in the morning. So I wasn't. I didn't hate it. I thought he was actually quite good at it. I didn't catch it, but apparently it was all right, better than Damien Lewis' British anthem. What I have like you got it. against that man? It was an awful rendition of the british national anthem i'm sorry we've got a fairly decent national anthem it's a bit drudgy but it's not bad and he absolutely massacred it i'm sorry i haven't forgiven the man for that just just, just a personal bug there but i i there were so many bits of like def definitely like oh we're in vegas across the weekend there were so many bits where you just go we could be anywhere we might as well be in fucking reno nevada like it, it's just bright lights and glamour at that point like there's nothing nothing Vegasy about it. Like, yeah, there was the Blue Man group and Elvis impersonators pottering around the paddock, but 
where was the interesting people doing that for the the podium celebrations? What and yeah, I did like the boxing announcer doing like the roll call for people to come out and get into their parade cars, even if Checo Perez didn't seem to understand what was going on. I, th- I think a lot of drivers got quite confused about what was going on. Certainly, Piastri and Norris when they both ended up in the same car, mostly because I think Piastri's broke down on the starting grid. Which, yeah. Again, that was why there was huge amounts of concrete dust up and down the starting grid at the start of the race, was because some of the cars they had do the parade lap were leaking quite a bit of oil. I think um, Perez and Hamilton had to end up sharing as well. <laughs> which two is guys so- fighting for P2 in the championship. Buddy up, boys. Yeah, I don't, they weren't best happy about the fact that the cars have been leaking either and then obviously left a, a greasy line and B, a load of dust to be kicked up as well. And I think that rather compounded when we actually came to the race start. But we'll get to that in a minute. We've still got the practice sessions where, surprisingly for once, the practice sessions actually had something worth watching for nine minutes. Um, FP1 was, of course, cancelled after nine minutes when Carlos Sainz's car sucked a water valve cover out of the road, literally pulled the metal cover and some of the concrete holding it in out of the road and obviously this flew up into the floor of his car obliterated not only the floor the survival cell which is a very strong part of the car um the battery and various other low-hanging components from within the engine so if we talk this gives you a great idea of understanding the energy that the cars create through the underfloor downforce is the fact they can essentially project about 30 kilos of concrete and metal into the floor enough to shatter it that's impressive um, rumours however suggested that the track wasn't properly inspected prior to the weekend starting and according to some sources homologation reportedly wasn't signed off until just ahead of the weekend like a few hours before FP1 the FIA hadn't gone round yet and gone it's up to code there you go you can race on this now which yeah um, but it wasn't just Sainz's car that had uh, damage caused by this Ocon's car had possibly been the car that went over it first and did the initial sort of brush past and uh, his car also necessitated a chassis change while Carlos took a new chassis battery engine and survival cell uh, the battery he used was beyond his pool of allocated parts as well so as such he was handed a 10 place grid penalty Ferrari did put in to have that overturned but reportedly one team rejected it and um, I think everyone is wondering if that team was the one that was at the start of the race certainly uh, 20 points um, just had Ferrari 20 points behind them and um, had obviously been suffering with Ferrari outscoring them in three of the last five races excluding Vegas I wrote this all while I was waiting for FP2 so yeah it it was Mercedes basically people think uh, might have had Ferrari's template grip penalty enforced uh, everyone else was going it seems a bit unfair that the track obliterating your car means you get a template I'm not grip sure penalty. how much sway the teams necessarily have on that sort of thing like they could all have been voting unanimously but then the stewards could have still done nah what was the rules because they said to themselves we don't want to have to do this but we're going to do that because rules and like well you're the guys who make the rules you could just make the exception you don't need the teams to be like oh we're all going to agree and if they don't then you can just use them as the scapegoats just seems a bit if you're going to enforce it enforce it but if you're not you're literally the guys who get to decide if it's going to get enforced or not just don't be a dick and especially after this stuff happens in australia back to miami you think as well that they'd check this sort of thing by now as well especially a lot sooner in the weekend like you say not just a few hours before and especially at a grand prix where you as f1 and liberty want everything to go perfectly and you can't even get 10 minutes into the first session without cocking it up it's just, you know, 
I mean, everyone's like, yeah, Mercedes this, Mercedes that, which maybe they did. We're not, we're not going to know that anytime soon, but it's just like, is that just a steward's going, yeah, their fault, nothing to do with us. I mean, well, in terms of Carlos Sainz getting his penalty, I mean, I assume, because they, were, they weren't going to um, let him off because it wasn't in the regulations to say sort of, that they could do that. I assume that the regulations were now changed to accommodate this in the future, but it seems pretty... I'd like ridiculous. to see that in writing. It just, it seems so ridiculous. And I would have thought there would be someone in the FIA, the race, or even at their headquarters that could give, I guess, such a permission. Um, but I sort of wonder whether, part of me wonders whether this perhaps harks back to the days of Michael Massey and Abu Dhabi and perhaps the power that a race director has or the FIA have has been somewhat reduced and the regulations now have to be followed a lot tighter because these are regulations, they're not law. I would have thought they would have been able to change change it. I don't know. It's No, I'm not saying that they necessarily could change it, but it's just kind of this thing of, just say you're enforcing it. Don't say, "Oh, we wish we didn't have to," because then people will then just question, "Well, why did you? Is there not room to manoeuvre?" It's kind of just say, "Yeah, it's unfair, but rules are rules," and just keep it really neutral and don't say, "Oh, we do have sympathy." Better that that just keep just play it straight down the middle and be, "Nah, rules are rules." Yeah, it's annoying, but that's what it is. We can maybe review that, like you say, to if there's an incident of that happening in the future to accommodate that accordingly if it's because again nowhere near Carlos Sainz or Ferrari's fault at all that could have happened to anyone and if we go down the route of believing that Mercedes were the ones to have some kind of influence on this you best believe that if that had been Lewis or George's car that that wouldn't have been the case and they'd have wanted to vote to change that all instead so it just seems I don't know just, just be strict about it and just be non- not not biased in any way, not necessarily, but just don't have any further comments. Like, yep, that's the rule. No comment now. Anything else? Mm, well, it weighs into the fact that there was between FP one and FP two, they held like a sort of impromptu team principals press conference, and Fred Vasseur was visibly very annoyed about the whole situation. And all the other team bosses seemed sort of pretty much on his side. They're like, yeah, that seems kind of unfair that you could be facing a grid penalty for something that wasn't your fault. Like if Carlos had binned it into the wall and they had to replace all those bits, fair enough, on Ferrari's head, be it. It was sort of very much their case. But they said this was beyond Ferrari's control. This was very much sort of... um, sort of force majeure. And the only person going against them was clearly Toto going... Sort of very much anti the idea of Ferrari sort of getting any leeway in this, and it was it was an interesting one to watch and look at the dynamic between all the principals and see who was upset about what, and especially given the fact that despite being hit with that ten place grid penalty, Sainz still out finished both Mercedes, really shows sort of not necessarily I would say the word threatened but certainly shows that Toto is looking over his shoulder a certain extent at Ferrari and the performance they seem to be putting together in the latter half of this season to go hmm if the W15 whatever it is doesn't come quite as good as we keep lauding it to be we might have a struggle next year if Ferrari are able to keep going with this trajectory so it's it's put the willies up Mercedes I'd say well I think as well it's the um they're obviously going to lose millions if they if Ferrari now overtake 
Mercedes and it doesn't quite seem I mean I think it's still impressive from how they started off from the start of the season they sort of really early on said okay let's scrap this car let's just start making the one sort of for later in the season and and next year and it has it's paid off for them and I think if you said earlier on in the year you can get third they probably wouldn't be so mad but because now they've been in second for a fair while now when sort of Aston Martin fell back I guess it kind of hurts them that it's Abu Dhabi that then that might potentially get it taken off of them. But I think what was really interesting as well in that press conference was when um, a journalist, um, when they opened it up uh, to anyone asking questions, a journalist said something along the lines of, you know, do you think the issues with the water valve cover that led to the damage to the Ferrari and the uh, cancellation of FP1 is a black eye for the sport? And Toto became extremely angered by this. And um, what was it? I've lost He really didn't like that at all. He seemed very suspiciously pro-Vegas on that one. I will will say that it was... Seemingly, but it was just kind of defending it way more than you'd expect him to. There were a lot of moments where you get the impression that people had been told to speak very positively about Vegas and you're sort of thinking... Well, it's the kind of thing, if, if, one's, if you're working for F1 and that's how you get your paycheck and you're not in a position where you can't... If you're not on Martin Brunder or Jensen Button where you don't really need to be there, mm. you, you can't really afford to say anything negative about the Grand Prix. You've got to have the party line. Mm, but if you're employed by F1, it's different to if you're employed by Mercedes AMG Formula One team. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's F1, curious. He's so, in that yeah. middle ground there. Of he's not. He doesn't need to say either, and he can say as much or as little as he wants. But it's, then it gets curious whichever way you go if you lean into it quite hard. Mm. As to which party line he's towing for whom and why. I mm. know it kind of got me thinking. Do we have a? I guess a duty to like sort of narrate or anticipate events more positively because a lot of people for me anyway came into Las Vegas almost wanting Las Vegas to fail and there was very sort of little positivity on the event coming into it and we had to remember sort of and this was Toto's point that there was a huge team behind this and they've worked hard to create an event and in fact I think aside from Hungary where the promotion of the event is led by Arian Frank Muhlenbelt. It's the only other Grand Prix to have planning and development led by females, yet very little news outlets actually covered this. And there was any, I guess, any positive press on it prior to Las Vegas actually happening. And I'm by no means saying we shouldn't cover aspects that aren't okay or perhaps been handled incorrectly, because we do have a duty to also provide that information. And I just think, should we be kind of having this narrative of almost coming into an event wanting it to fail? I don't think going in and wanting it to fail is necessarily the mindset. I think when you have something new that's being presented as a very different concept to what's quite a sort of set in stone sport, you have a right to be sort of to question it and to be suspect as to how it's going to approach. Bear in mind the sort of if you if you follow cricket any amount, you know how much sort of lack 
there was some throwback that was against the hundred when that was launched, and that worked perfectly when it came in. People were like, oh no, this makes a hundred hundred percent sort of sense. It, you throw a hundred balls, it's how much you can score off a hundred overs, end. And it became a really fast-paced, interesting way of introducing a new audience to cricket. And Formula One is trying something similar in that regard of trying to introduce new things to get a new audience. And yes, that needs criticism, but at the same time, it does need praise. And I think, like you said, you can't go into it wanting it to fail. And I know a lot of people went into the 100 when it was introduced to cricket wanting it to fail because they're like, no, we can't change it. We need to have sort of huge sort of five-day-long test matches that go on for hours and hours and hours. And there was this sort of very much sort of standoffish sense from cricket against sort of this new concept and it didn't look good as an outsider so i can't imagine that everyone hoping for the downfall of vegas looked good from an outsider's perspective with regards to formula one i certainly yeah view it with suspicion view it with a critical eye view it with sort of a, a journalistic intent to sort of ask why has this been done this way what would you do better more than simply go well, this is a bit naff, isn't it? And Toto does... So I wonder how much of it was down to the fact that saying you're dead against something before it's even happened just goes better on social media because it just it's more in it's your face about and everything is going to... Yeah, clickbaiting. It's just going to get the attention going. Whereas if you did what we essentially said in the preview, of, we're not really sure what to expect here. We're going to go in with an open mind and it would be nice to be pleasantly surprised and we can get to what we actually thought of it a bit later, but... It kind of, we're not wanting it to fail. We're just confused about the methodology employed for doing this because no one really asked for Vegas back. We were kind of con not confused when they made it, but we were kind of all rolling our eyes when they did announce it. We're like, oh, that's going to be, we had a preset notion of how it was going to be. And in a lot of ways, with the pre and post race entertainment, quote unquote, there was a lot of that, of what we expected it to be, sort of thing. And it's not necessarily being against it, but it's just knowing what is going to be there. It might not be our cup of tea, but that's not then necessarily saying that we're we're wanting the entire thing to fail so badly that it's going to never happen again. It's just you can find that middle ground. You you want it to do well because at the end of the day we all love it one, and you want it to be good. So it's annoying when you see a method that you're not convinced is going to work in attracting and keeping new fans and old ones at the same time, if that makes sense. You've got to balance that line. And I think it's very easy to just say, oh, I want this to fail because it's not exactly as I wanted it to be. But then you've got 10 different people saying that and what they all want individually is very different from each other. Mm. There's definitely different ways of approaching it and asking the questions of it, but certainly going into it with at least an open mind is arguably the best best mo but um there were still more problems to come because of course we had to wait for the track to be repaired there were still holes out the front of the commentary box that were being filled in prior 15 minutes prior to the start ventilation. of ventilation ventilation um but obviously once fp2 got underway it was actually run behind closed doors because marshals and stewards on the fan side of things had clocked off for the night there were bus drivers there were sort of coordination personnel that were only sort of signed on to work until a certain time and there was no means for them to work an extra period of time because working that late in the day working that length of a shift is sort of barred by american employment law so obviously f1 had to follow that and it meant that basically fans were ushered out um despite the fact they'd waited around to watch the free practice session and they were sort of led from their seats and um 
that was the end of that. And um, it very much suggests that the race organizers hadn't foreseen there possibly being a delay between practice sessions or anything in that regard. Uh, they hadn't sort of thought, oh, a new street circuit, we're likely to see some issues here. Um, which well, it's never happened before. Every track that they've introduced, especially on street circuits, we all know it's famously gone 100% smooth every time. So I don't know why they would need to think that. Yeah, it was a little bit short-sighted there. And then, obviously, fans with just tickets for the Friday were given a $200 gift voucher by way of an apology, which feels like a bit of a kick in the dick. Absolutely woeful. Especially if you spent what I think even just a grandstand ticket for the Friday was the best part of, like, $800, I want to hazard a guess at. As well, if you saw some of the merchandise that they had and the prices of that $200 does not scrape you jack shit. Yeah, it gets you. Most you might get a hat, but even then... You know, it's like you're not going to go all that way. Like, and I got a hat, and I got two hundred bucks off it. Wait, what? You had to spend two hundred quid on a hat? What does it do? Not much. I went to FP1, and all I got was this lousy cap. Like, it's. I wouldn't even say that. Well, uh, yeah, but it, it's it. It's a concept that just it feels like there was a few it sort doesn't of doesn't surprise me that at the end of it. Yeah, there is a there is a I think it's a class action suit that's being put together in favor or reportedly in favor of the um fans that are attending. But it was a bit of a mess and obviously with things rolling on late into the night, we had there were reports again, this was sort of coming from people within the paddock, that at least two teams had their sort of strategy teams just sort of up and leave halfway through. Um they all disappeared off to bars and clubs in a bid to try and stay awake, just to sort of go somewhere because they had nothing to do. They had no deep data to go off from FP1. And as a strategist. Yeah, as a strategist, you've got nothing to do in FP2. You have a run plan and just hope that they get stuck to. Um, so they just sort of all upped and left to, I think it was a bar they all went off to. And one team sort of arrived at the bar and was sort of having second thoughts about it, thinking, now nah, we should probably head back. It feels bad to be sort of shirking off work. And they get in there and found that there was another team strategy group already in there just going, we've got nothing to do. We're just waiting for numbers at this point. We're just waiting for FP2 to give us something. So it was that that was kind of a funny story to emerge. But more interestingly, and this again speaks for the weird timings of Vegas, was that because Ocon and Science started with a new chassis, generally speaking, to avoid teams rebuilding cars in a rush, you have to, if you enter a new chassis, it has to be the next day. So if you were to bin it on a Friday, you can't quickly rebuild it and put it out again later on in Friday. You have to wait till Saturday. This encourages teams to take care when rebuilding their cars, ensure the process is done properly. But because it took so long to get FP2 back up or FP2 started because of the road repairs and everything, the clock ticked over from Friday to Saturday, which meant that in the time that Ferrari and Alpine had basically rebuilt their cars, the timer had reset, it was a new day, and they were allowed to enter their new chassis, despite the fact that it's still technically being the run plan from the previous day, which they wouldn't have been allowed to do because it took so long, they were allowed to enter. So finally a benefit to having the weekend at such city times. Yeah, it was it was a weird little benefit to it. And again, one of those weird quirks and rules that only comes out at the strangest of events, like when you sort of get the things that say, if a snail passes through and the snail's name happens to be Maria Lee, you're allowed to run a car that's got a billion horsepower or something. It's one of those weird things that's hidden at the back of a rule book that all of a sudden someone's gone, hang on, we can get the car into FP2. If, it, if we're looking at their watch going, look, we've got to wait 15 minutes, boys, and we can get that out on track. So we might as well start rebuilding it. The clock will roll over. It's eligible to go. So there's... Yeah, one of those weird moments of FP of, of Formula One sort of going, oh, yeah, we didn't think about that rule. Oh, well. Um, 
That's not to say that the rest of the practice sessions went without hitch. We saw in FP3, Alex Albon cracked a wheel and lost a tyre, um, but somehow Sargent made it to P3 as well. So there was a lot of hope for the Williams, certainly in sort of one lap pace and short run pace for the Grove outfit. But um, this is yet another weekend we've seen cars losing tires or spitting wheels out across the circuit and it's certainly something that's come in since we've moved to these larger wheels that either if the wheel cracks and it ejects the tire in the case with albums it actually had a huge amount of the wheel the, the actual uh, car spun carbon fiber still within the tire so it wasn't just like the hub it was all of it had gone um so I think there's going to be investigations over the winter break as we move to um, the next sort of setup to find out if there's a way of improving wheel disassembly to improve safety around the circuit because it doesn't take much for those wheels to get catapulted over catch fencing and into crowds where they can cause a lot of damage. Um, beyond that, though, Leclerc then went on to top qualifying with Verstappen P2 and Russell P3 once you account for Sainz's grid penalty. McLaren were out in Q1, Lewis couldn't find pace in Q2, nor could Perez, but both Williams made it into Q3 and started the race P5 and P6. Um, in interviews and reports from the team, the lower temperatures see, or saw their car not overheat its rear tyres, which essentially in short run gave them more coherent compounds to utilise. This coupled well with a nicely understood low downforce setup and gave the team a good amount of pace and both drivers were able to maximise it. It was really promising to see Logan Sargent's sort of development through the season. He's gotten better, certainly, and with the car being a lot more stable but a lot more dynamic he was able to really utilize that so there's there's good signs there but um pole was set in the wee hours of saturday and with the grand prix set to start at 10 p.m also on the saturday in local time um we actually saw that pole and the winner were crowned on the same day ultimately different people though um but yeah in another interesting quirk of the organization because of course qualifying started at, as the clock ticked over into midnight most of qualifying and the race actually happened on the same day um stroll was going to take a five place grid penalty for additional power unit components and dropped from 14th to 19th at the start magnuson and bottas were the other two surprises from uh, in q3 as was pierre gasly who started the race in p4 and then we well, it was pretty good i just think that whilst we did admittedly get a, a decent race which i'll get back to in a bit but I still think that the qualifying, what we see in qualifying needs to transfer over more to the Grand Prix more often now because, like you said, there was quite a mixed up top 10 there, and especially when you look at the fact that Lewis, Perez, Sainz, and both McLaren were out of the mix of there as well. You want that kind of jeopardy in the race, and we did get jeopardy in the race, but it wasn't, it was kind of, you could have had this, and what you got wasn't bad, but we want it closer to what we get in qualifying in that kind of jumbled up nature. Yeah, there's. It's it's weird that you can have such a jumbled up grid, and it so quickly just sort of resets itself. Come the race, mm. seems mainly down to tires. It does seem to come down to which teams can utilize their tires, and I think in Vegas with the cold temperatures, that was made more starkly known than anything. Teams that either struggled with sort of getting heat into their tires, or um, getting too much heat into their tyres, rather, were able to really capitalise on those conditions and make the most of it. That's where we saw sort of the Red Bull not necessarily struggle, but certainly wasn't quite at home. But the likes of Ferrari, Alfa Romeo, Haas uh, were able to really sort of go hammer and tongs at it early on because they knew their cars were able to generate the heat. And with the cooler conditions, they weren't going to grain them up quite so quickly. 
of course, moving on from qualifying, we dive headfirst into the race. And um, the first thing that we see is Max pushing Charles wide into turn one. He earned himself a five-second penalty for this, which, given that he had uh, just done one lap post the safety car and had already opened up two seconds, really looked like it wasn't going to be a very worthwhile penalty. But equally, I think... I did see a lot of people seem quite unhappy with especially for his reaction to and and the penalty the reaction to the penalty because yeah there was no grip but it meant that the two like you're dealing with two of the best drivers in the world quote unquote if you believe the the WWE or UFC announcement guy at the start and it just seemed a little sloppy to do that straight away you could have just you didn't need to dive for it right there and then you've got 50 laps you're you're meant to be Max Verstappen you don't need to be doing it so rashly so early doors and five seconds didn't really do much of anything i mean this the safety cars were what brought everything back together and if that had just been a normal ish race it would have made zero difference and ultimately didn't make any difference anyway so it was just and say i know he doesn't need to be he doesn't even need to be there in the race max at the moment because everything's wrapped up but it just seems like well why are you going so weirdly aggressive for something that you could have just done down the back straight anyway Equally, why not? He's got nothing to lose. Well, yeah, nothing but to it's just you might as well. No, no, I know, but it's just you expect better from a higher caliber driver. It's kind of something you'd like. Why are you bothering to push him out so far early? It seems a bit like you can't claim that. Oh, yeah, grip, but also you know that it's not going to be grip. There's, you know, just do it more outlandishly in a much more entertaining way later. You'll have more fun with it rather than just nah, nah. I don't think drivers did realise though how much or how little grip there really was though because as well you had both Carlos and Fernando spinning out you know especially Fernando whenever do you see Fernando do that yeah Fernando Alonso spinning is quite the odd thing I mean we'll just wrap up on Max quickly and but he wasn't going for like an overtake well okay he's kind of overtake but again it seemed more he just did it by himself it wasn't as a result of doing anything else whereas Max just seemed to he could have made that corner without Charles being there you know it's mm-hmm. kind of it seemed more like he was just a good cover for getting past him yeah I mean Charles said of Logan Sargent Fernando so he mm-hmm. was he was doing it for places he saw his opportunity and went for it and it ultimately didn't pay out when then he tried to break and realized oh there's no no breaks yeah but I mean, Charles said in an interview afterwards with, I think it was Canal Plus, the French network, that he and Max had already spoken about it and Max had simply just lost grip on entry and was fighting understeer. It wasn't the best side of the grid to start on that one. It had all the oil and the concrete dust that laid down post parade lap anyway so he'd likely started the race with cold and dirty tires and um yeah Max just said that he'd lost grip on entry and was fighting understeer and if you watch back Max's onboards he's not not necessarily not in control of the car, but he's fighting a lot more than you'd expect him to. Um, and equally, he said that the two of them had already moved on from it. Like, they appreciate that the, there was no harm lost there. And given the pace the Red Bulls had, he was going to come past at some point. So it's, it's annoying that he lost it and he felt that he could have been fighting for the win. But ultimately, the race ended up the race that ended up. But like we mentioned, Alonso dived up the inside of the pack. He had a very good start, really started sort of lunging his way down the field, stormed up the inside of turn one, um, and then without any grip spins and narrowly missed the back of Logan Sargent, which would have really ruined his race more so than it sort of panned out as a bit of a flop anyhow. But yeah, even then Bottas um, dived on the brakes to avoid him. And um, then, yeah, Perez runs into the back of 
Bottas and at the same time Hamilton has had contact with Sainz and Sainz has spun so it's it's all a bit it's been chaotic. five minutes since Perez drove into someone anyway so it's due to happen I mean to be fair I don't think Perez was expecting Bottas to be A in front of him and B then suddenly lay into the brakes in the sort of high point of turn one so it's a bit of an odd point to do it but the whole thing triggered a VSC just so they could quickly sort of tidy up some of the debris that come off of it which didn't necessarily neutralize things but very quickly sort of stabilize things at least uh, we then went racing after the VSC but with um, cold tires Norris uh, suffered a bit of floor contact over a bump coming out onto the back straight and spun out and crashed which uh fairly big spectacularly shunt. it was quite a spectacular crash a lot of sparks coming through it's, it's just the way that you saw it unfolding you just had this camera angle you just saw sparks and it cut something out like wait i swear something happened there and yeah, the camera of... people are like oh crap if we, we go back and then you see the like the above shot and you see how close he was to him to piastri like that would have been awkward as heck but yeah just it just the, the nature of it, like what happened? Surely something must have hit him. And it was like, no, just wrong place, wrong time, and just out. And mm. just like, yeah, you ain't you ain't getting that back. Yeah, my initial guess was it looked like a sort of botched upshift, like something had gone wrong with the hydraulics, and therefore the gearbox hadn't synced a shift somehow and under-rotated the rear at turn 13. But it was just this bump. If you watch it back beforehand, just you went. do see it just kick, and then he's he fights it for a good while. But unfortunately, at that point, on cold tyres off the back of a VSC, just goes round on him and unfortunately at that point it was sort of med centered then off to the hospital as well afterwards but um all accounts i could just i could recovered. just hear piastri in my head if he'd been hit just going why why i could have had a chance why but after that it was a pretty straightforward race with the grid very much unjumbling itself max fought back through after his penalty extended stop so i'm losing a lot of positions leclerc definitely fought well to defend back past him as well as max boxed so he sort of made sure he got the I would like to have seen him get the overtake done a little bit earlier so he could capitalise on it once. But um, I think Red Bull sort of made the box-box call as late as possible to try and avoid that happening. So a smart move there, really, from the Red Bull pit wall. But Leclerc drove well around it and made the one-stop strategy work when it really didn't look like it was going to be the competitive option. Um, And it was a move that Charles had done before which he then completely telegraphed and put past on Perez again on the final lap. And equally... He had passed Perez doing the same thing earlier on in the race, so Perez surely would have known that that was coming, and you would have expected Perez to maybe have defended it a bit better, but instead he just sort of shoots it up the inside and makes it stick going into those sort of final chicane, but ultimately it was a fantastic race for Charles I know we'll touch on him later um, Hulkenberg and Sonoda retired I know Sonoda retired with a gearbox issue I'm not entirely certain what the problem was with Hulkenberg's Haas but um, it was overall as a race it was quite good I've got some additional notes jotted down over here um, crucially uh, the 2023 Las Vegas Grand Prix recorded 99 overtakes which is the most for a dry F1 race since China 2016 which is, which is depressing no? depressing that it's been so long since we've had a race with a lot of overtakes but equally it's like indycar if you've got 99 overtakes i know different but if they've only got 99 you think that's been a bad race whereas yes. like, oh, yeah oh bad. yeah if you're only getting 99 overtakes it's a bit of a, a bit of a flop race well one thing i will realize just flicking back through my notes i want to go back to um qualifying quickly and talk about the tire temperatures because i mentioned it a bit with norris's spin and at the start of the straight, the, the main front straight, 
rear tires, generally speaking, were about 50 degrees Celsius and fronts were about 60 degrees Celsius. By the end of that long straight, the rear tires would have dropped to 25 degrees Celsius and the fronts down to 35. So on average, they're losing 25 degrees Celsius just down that front straight alone. And when you bear in mind that we're no longer running tire blankets, these tires are so sensitive to the heat conditions in them. And you're losing a huge amount of that. And equally, the working range for these Pirellis is 85 to 115 degrees Celsius, which I don't think 115 degrees Celsius is like a boiling point of water, but certainly 85 seems about right. Considering they come out of the tire blankets at 70, like we're talking hot tires, and they were solid cold this weekend. So it's little. It's actually quite surprising we didn't see any more accidents than we did. I think it was weirdly a much better Grand Prix than we were expecting it to be. Again, coming into the figure, we didn't really know what to expect, but it was better than whatever we thought it might be. But at the same time, I keep reminding myself to take that with a pinch of salt after the year we've had Grand Prix quality-wise. And it's going to be interesting to see if it's a one-off or if it can be better next year or if it's worse. I mean, we've seen Baku, for example, have some great races and then the last couple of years have been mediocre. Very just at the best. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's it was a good start. And I think it definitely salvaged the weekend overall because with all the other issues surrounding it, if it had then been a boring race, it would have, to hark back to what you were saying earlier, early May, given a lot of people who were coming and wanting it to throw even more ammunition to go well that was all worth it then wasn't it we got absolutely bugger all of max one by 40 seconds down the road and nothing else really happened whereas at least this way be it because of the slightly jumbled up nature of the grid and some of the contacts such as with lewis and piastri and george and max and just signs and the different pit strategies going on we did get some drivers down the bottom of the pack being able to come up several times to try and get back up to the top of it and that was entertaining. It was nice that you could actually overtake it, Vegas. And you obviously had the the strip for it, which was the perfect kind of overtaking opportunity. But that wasn't the only place you saw it. You saw some very neat and niche overtakes in other places of the track where you didn't think you were going to get it. And it was weirdly entertaining. Again, it's kind of hard to know. You're kind of sitting there going, did I just enjoy that? Yes, but I wasn't expecting to say that. So I don't know how I'm feeling now. Um, did you enjoy Delhi May, or were you, or are you yawning because it was you're remembering it, and that is why you were, it was just boring for you? No, I'm just really tired. Um, I really enjoyed the race, but what I will say is, I thought George Russell's five second penalty was quite harsh. I mean, it's sort yeah, of, yeah, agree. Verstappen's overtake sort of came out of nowhere, a bit sort of almost like Leclerc then did on Perez. It was just that. Paris yeah, Leclerc did it cleaner. Yeah. I think I think I was surprised that George been... got the penalty for that because I thought if anyone's going to get a bit of a slap on the wrist there, that's going to be Max for for leaving it so late there because where's George supposed to go? Well, that's what I thought when when I was sort of looking at it. I thought, is Max going to get a penalty? And I thought, nah, it's more of a sort of racing incident but so it seemed more racing but yeah but you're thinking yeah. if you're going to portion blame then it's not going to be on the guy that's just trying to get around a corner before this car just comes out of nowhere yeah i just i just think george didn't didn't see him and i thought yeah it was just a bit harsh but maybe because it had been done a few other times during 
throughout the race, the FIA maybe saw that and thought, well, everyone else has done it cleanly and you haven't. Mm. I, I think it's harsh. It was curious. It was a little harsh. I, I just find it interesting, though, with the team radio, that I don't think they told George until after the race because I wouldn't necessarily have thought you'd maybe you'd still fight that hard towards the end to get people but the way it was phrased on the team radio it was like does he know he's got a penalty or are they just choosing not to tell him until later and just like let's just see how far we can push him up the grid and then see if we can build a gap if that's possible of five seconds that we can do damage limitation and we'll just tell them later because I feel like if he'd been told about it we'd have heard that team radio because he probably would have had a couple of things to say Mm. It's. I think it was a little bit of a harsh penalty, but I don't think at the end of the day it scuppered too much of the overall race. And ultimately, I think it it was. Yeah, he just didn't see him and didn't check. I think, and I think there is a certain aspect that when you're going into corners and you know you're in one of those key attacking zones, and you know you've got a driver steaming up behind you, you do sort of or probably should check a little bit. I think that's. That's possibly sort of more the, the racing style, but at the end of the day, it was sort of a bit of a, a non-plus incident. It didn't really seem to hamper Max's progress too much, and it certainly didn't seem to do much damage to George's race overall. Uh, I would argue that it has, because he fell down behind Lewis Hamilton, and Mercedes need all the points that they can get. It's hampered Mercedes' progress in the championship, but it hasn't really ruined George's on a personal level then. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah. But crucially come the end of the race, this now means that Red Bull are now uncatchable for 1-2 in the Drivers' Championship. So they've done what they wanted to achieve this year, which was not only get another Drivers' title with Max, but also get the 1-2 in the Drivers' standings and the con- get a stri- constructor standing as well. So pretty good move so there. Perez has done his hardest to try not to achieve that with them this year at times, so it's a miracle in some respects. He does seem to have been sort of fighting them in that sort of ambition, but it's, it's come through in the end. He's done exactly what they needed of him, and they seem with him they seem well pleased even if it's been a bit stressful at times um science is now however tied with alonso on points but does lead on countback with his singapore win for fourth um this also bumps norris down to sixth and also weirdly because of his podium now this brings Charles back into the mix for that fight for the sort of the top end of the points which is quite the, quite the little battle that's going on there it's quite fun to keep an eye on obviously ferrari is now even closer to mercedes overall i will he says scrolls up and checks points Four points, isn't it, going into the final round, which is... And Aston Martin's not too far away. It's like 10 or nine points away from McLaren, I think. So, I mean, yeah. that's doable. I don't see it happening, but it's doable. Uh, Aston Martin are 21 points behind McLaren. Oh, no, hang on. Okay, so like, on. okay they do need McLaren to have a pretty bad weekend, but... No, um, they are 11 points behind. Sorry. That's, that's more doable then. Yeah. Still, it's going to be tricky, but interesting. Yeah, it's perfectly attainable, but whether or not Abu Dhabi suits the Aston Martin McLaren yet, I have to go pour over my numbers for it. But so yeah, if we take it back to other desert tracks this year, 50-50, Qatar went all right for McLaren, not so good for Aston Martin, but Bahrain went pretty good for Aston Martin, not so good for McLaren. So. Mm. It depends, but obviously there's been a lot of development in that McLaren, so we'll see how it pans out towards that. But yeah, it's... it's it's bringing the season to a good end. I think we're seeing a few of the final battles really shaking out at this point. So it's been a worthwhile Grand Prix, I think, crucially in the overall sort of putting together of the year and the season, I'd say. Um, whether or not the 
the aspects of it that we that were put around the race were to be enjoyed or when the timings were perfectly correct is yet to be fully nailed down but i think conceptually as a race and what it's produced i think it's been beneficial to the season in providing some interest and insight certainly do you think needed it it's been put on they're not they didn't put it on earlier i mean one i guess logistics but two because of european time um, what early on in the day yeah because yeah. Thinking it's what they started the race at 10 o'clock about 6 a.m for us mm. 7 a.m 7 for continental yeah there was very much the case of generally speaking around the world races are held so they start i believe it's two o'clock um uk time um but there are a lot more sort of flexible on that these days i think they allow for like 3 a.m 3 p.m starts obviously that's why we have um like singapore being a night race is to keep that relatively in regard to sort of being sort of that standard 2 p.m uk start time um but obviously there are certain places where that just can't be met and i think that viewers are getting more and more flexible with that things like Suzuka, australia sort of being held at different times mean we get different start times and it's once or twice a year for the vast majority of Formula One's fans. I think they they appreciate that it's a bit of a struggle for some fans, but ultimately it's not too bad. But I, I would possibly argue that you could have factored in the effort that puts onto the teams, especially ahead of a double header, off the back of a triple header. Well, that goes away for the name of entertainment, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Especially the double header and the fact that there's such a different time zone. At least with the triple header they've just done, they've not really sort of hopped around too much with time zones. You're sort of only lump jumping sort of one or two at any given point in time. It's not too horrid. But going from Las Vegas out to Abu Dhabi, you're jumping forwards in time by 12 hours you're spending 17 hours on a plane to achieve that or something awful it really quickly adds up and puts a toll on your body it's going to be a huge task on teams to not only be functioning on a high level but also physios to get drivers ready to go out and do something incredibly physical on literally running on fumes at this point i think physically a lot of the drivers are going to be sort of ready for this season to finish and uh, i saw um the interview with um, Sky interviewing Esteban Ocon, and they said, you know, are you going to go out and party? And he was like, well, if my physio tells me that I have to stay up, then yes, because it's the only way that's going to keep me awake. Yeah, to sort of essentially stay up, because then immediately the first thing you start doing after you finish one race is start getting onto the time zone of the next, so you're immediately ready to deal with that next Grand Prix as best as possible. But we'll move on from all of that and we'll pause through some more analysis with our winners and spinners section. We'll start with some winners and we'll start with possibly an obvious one, Ellie May. I've gone for Charles Leclerc. I mean... No notes, perfection. Yeah. Such a strong weekend from him. Um, Overtook both Red Bulls on outright pace. Um, I mean... Perez had more downforce on his car, which obviously caused him to be slower. But, you know, Perez could have equally defended that corner a lot better. And I think, has anyone else overtaken Max Verstappen? Not this season, no. Which? For me, the move on Max was not the one where he got past. It was the one where he tried to get past a second time. And you see them both go onto the brakes as both cars sort of start retarding. And then 
you see Charles lift the brakes and tries it to send it that bit longer, but knows that he has to get back on to slow the car a bit more. And it's that sort of, I'm going to keep trying. And I absolutely love to see that. It was, it didn't pay off for a pass. It wasn't, he wasn't going to get it around the outside, but to try and make that move on the brakes, not into a braking zone, but on the brakes when both cars are really slowing down is a true racing driver's move and really like seeing that. So yeah, for me, if you're calling Charles Leclerc a winner on this, no complaints, no notes, perfection, chef's kiss. The tyres seemingly didn't suffer much degradation for Ferrari as well. He really looked after them quite well. It was struggled on that. Mm, it was it was his window. It was like a perfect operating window for him. Those tires in that car, it really sort of came into its own with those conditions. And maybe a winter series would be quite fun with these cars if that's how they kind of treat their tires. Um, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, he it was a series all across Canada. Yeah, while well, Red Bull might have come away with the winners' trophy, I think. Uh, the, the sort of moral victor and the driving talent sort of victor from this was Charles Leclerc. Yeah, I think it's... I'd like to know how different his and Carlos's setup was. I know Carlos was obviously battling a lot more drivers, but to be suffering from overheating, what did Ferrari do? <laughs> I think it was because they were running with such closed-off ducts because they knew it was going to be cool, but they didn't anticipate perhaps... It getting warm if you're sat in traffic and equally because you're hemmed in with street circuits because you've got the walls so close you don't it builds like a tiny microcosm of an environment below those sort of five foot concrete barriers that quickly sort of heats up into like a weird pocket that doesn't dissipate so the cars very quickly in traffic get warm but yeah no notes for me on Charles Leclerc Timo who have you picked for your winner and I mean I don't even like saying it Lance Stroll <laughs> Admittedly, he did look out a bit on strategy, but he did actually manage to keep his head down and stay out of trouble, mainly due to chaos and drama around him, leaving him untouched. And it does feel a little bit too late, too little too late for him generally. But it did good, and it doesn't fit. I'm going to have to wash my mouth out in a minute for saying it. It just doesn't feel right, but it just weirdly credit where it's due, even if it's... It's just Vegas being Vegas. Of course, Lance Stroll had to somehow do well in all of that. And it's, it's, I didn't have that on my bingo card. We should move on. It's too weird. On, on tracks where the, or on circuits where the track provides as much grip as a sheet of glass doused in fairy liquid, Lance Stroll becomes god tier when it comes to driving the car i don't think quite had the pace and i don't think the strategy quite supported him utilizing it to its full but my god he was driving really well this weekend and equally one thing i will say is it's really nice seeing lance stroll always so proud of his son when he's doing well like you mean lawrence stroll lawrence stroll even yeah when when you see him get out of the car and like Lawrence is... Being... I knew that the driver wasn't going to have been Lance. He had a son this whole time and he stuck him in the F1 car instead. You just see Lawrence beaming from ear to ear and he's pleased and happy with what his son's done. He's like, yeah. I think also still because Lance is just simply living Lawrence's dreams vicariously, but the, the concept lives. Perhaps, like you said, we should have a winter series. Yeah. Lance Stroll likes a winter series. I think he did one in F4 once and was absolutely boss at it, but we'll see what happens there. But uh, that's that's Timo's winner, and he's gone to quickly wash his mouth out with soap. Meanwhile, um, for me, my winner Beach. is Esteban Ocon. 
and I again, it's sort of one of those things of I didn't expect it. I didn't really anticipate there being a P4 for Rockon for coming so from so far down the grid. Um, but yeah, just paid out for the boy. Like, one stop strategy made it work. Looked after his tires. Didn't get hung up too much fighting through the fields, so he was able to really make his tyres last a long time. Pulled off an absolute worldy of a move on Pierre Gasly, despite team orders to stay behind him. Um, and pulled it off in a part of the circuit where you weren't expecting it. I think it was into the right-hander heading towards the sphere section. So it was, yeah, an odd place to make the move, but he pulled it off and made it stick on sort of breaking and corner entry. And... Yeah, just really good weekend from Esteban Ocon. He's sort of one of those drivers, much like Lance Stroll, his friend, that gets easily overlooked. But occasionally when they have those good drives, they are truly phenomenal drives, and especially because it's sort of against the odd of the machinery and the race itself. The annoying thing is, is it could have quite easily been Alpine as the winners. And I, I, I just, I don't know what happened to Pierre Gasly that second half of the race because he'd been so phenomenal for the whole entire weekend. Yeah, he remembered he was driving an Alpine. He was running experimental parts on the car. He was running a slightly different car in and of itself. There were different elements to it. They were sort of prepping ahead of 24. So I think that ultimately that might have given him better one lap pace. But when it came to the race, obviously they were looking for data and numbers off of how the car was responding to things. And... Yeah, the, given where Alpine sits within the constructor standings, they've got a bit of scope for playing around. I don't think they've got quite the same with their drivers. I know both Esteban and Pierre are fighting Stroll for sort of bottom of the top 10 at the moment. Um, so it's, it's an interesting battle yeah. there. But I think, yeah, with um, both of them playing out with um, sort of prototype parts, it's quite interesting. Let's see, where's checks numbers? Ocon, 58 points. Gasly, 62 points. So just four points separate them, and Stroll is on 73. So they're all within sort of touching distance of one another. There's, I think Ocon might be a bit far out to try and get Stroll at this point. But yeah, certainly Gasly against Stroll, there's there's possibility something happening, and they might swap the field again when it comes to Abu Dhabi, like we've seen them sort of swap back and forth before. Did they both have experimental parts and Esteban Ocon have to go back to an old chassis with his... It was after the crash, yeah, they swapped Esteban back to a rather more standard setup and I think come the race, because that was slightly more understood against the long plan data, it paid off for him. So it's sort of, sod's law, it paid out that way. But I think at the end of the day, to still produce that drive on a one-stop when those around you are going bold on the two-stops really shows off sort of quite a good level of talent there. On the flip side, we'll go to the spinners, and we'll start with Timo, because yours is relatively straightforward to explain. Yes, Alpha Tauri. I was looking to, I was going to go for Haas, but it seemed to me to go for them again. So I thought I'd go for Alpha Tauri, just because they didn't seem to really be able to convert anything all weekend, and it's a shame, given recent promise. And it may have cost them the position in the constructors that they were going to go and get for from Williams, potentially. It's doable still, but again, they need to have a belt of an Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and it piles a lot more pressure on them than they really didn't need and could have done with at least one of the cars up there and neither one was there unfortunately and it was uh, I mean Yuki absolutely dire in, in qualifying and Daniel getting a bit further weird but again for a track where in, a, in an atmosphere where you think Ricardo would somehow thrive here and just be able to harness the power of Vegas to push his car forward didn't, it didn't work um, so it was, a, it was a shame to see that on, on that side and every I think every team kind of had elements of something I mean 
even McLaren qualifying in the race for Lando in particular didn't go well, but Yastri was sitting up there in third at one point going, hmm, how do I stay here? So there were moments of brilliance for everyone, and you could look at that with Williams and Alfa Romeo in qualifying. Alpine, like we said, they had a bit of an autopsy over time. Every team had something, but yeah, Alfa Tauri just didn't. They, they didn't really sparkle this weekend. There was a, there was just a sort of flatness to them as a team. The like every other stripes didn't work. Mm. All the other teams had a moment where they looked good, whether it was qualifying or the race. There was at least a flash in the pan moment. Yeah, but Alfa Tauri just didn't even have the flash in the pan, which was upsetting. But when it comes to spinners... I think here, Ellie May and I go or sort of butt heads a bit. You've gone for the haters and I've gone for the organisers. I've gone for the haters because even if you take out, you know, anything, whether you know you're trying to create a spectacle or whatever, you just look at the just look at the race itself. We had a good race. Yeah, I cannot cannot deny that. I think though, when it comes to the organizers, there were a lot of things that they sort of fell short on or possibly overlooked and on a practical side, I would have liked for it to have been done better. I'm not saying the whole weekend was a flop or it was all bad, but there were certain bits that certainly could have been done better when it came to focusing on the race. The entertainment side of it, the entertainment value, the showmanship, incredible. And I don't really hate that on reflection. Like I said, if we're going to have a goofy-ass race weekend, having it in Vegas and making it the big top, sort of the greatest show on earth, sort of drama of it all fantastic love it i'm on board with that but you need to have the sort of solid base to run it off of and when your track isn't fully like certified until just before the track action starts and when you've got parade cars that are leaking oil onto the starting grid and you've got bumps that are spitting people off it starts to feel a little bit 1970s sort of detroit and dallas when you've got tracks that are breaking up under the heat of the sort of summer sun in in sort of america and it it and nigel mansell's fainting pushing his car across the finish line it sort of starts to feel a bit farcical in that sort of way like things weren't properly thought through but at the end of the day i will give it credit where it's due and yeah as much as i sort of have a few bones to pick i don't hate it as a weekend and unfortunately it sort of very much flies in the face of um what i said with our season long predictions we made these way back at the start of the year and i did include on the questions will las vegas suck and i've colored my one in red because i said yes it will and i can't say that with my chest i can't i can't truthfully say that las vegas as a grand prix weekend sucked and what did i say you said no son of a bitch so you, you do, do you think Las Vegas? You, you seem pretty positive about the whole sort of race and the race weekend. So I, I think I yeah, I mean, probably... I based it purely on the racing because I knew that if I start doing that for stuff surrounding Grand Prix, then there's going to be a lot of arguments about this whole season. But yeah, if I take it purely on the racing, it didn't suck. No, so that's, well that's... done, me. Yeah, it's going to be points to you at the end of the year. Ellie May, you described it as car park, as exciting as. So unfortunately, you've fallen into the same trap as I have and will have, when I come to top this up, lose points. Um, I remember saying it, uh, because I remember just being really, really tired on the top floor of Olympia. Mm. And you're next to me like, just give me an answer. Will it suck, yes or no? And you go, it's going to be as exciting as a car park. I'm like, okay, cool. A lot of other people um, really weren't positive about it. 
Um, but a few people said no. And so they, they will have earned themselves points for that, which is quite impressive. Um, so, yeah, well done to those people. Um, I, I guess in answer to your the organisers being a spinner, is that I think I would just, I don't know, maybe I'll actually give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think I will let them have sort of see their flaws and if they pick up on that and they, um, you know, do whatever needs to be done next year so that we don't have those issues and they iron them all out, then I think that's fine. I think if we come to next year and it's we've got these same issues, then I will be a bit harsher on them. Mm. Yes, likewise, if next year they solve all these problems, I'm... I'm willing to go back through my files and retroactively remove my spinner's accolade from them. But we'll do that in about 365 days' time. Um, any other drivers that we really feel are worth a mention? I feel we've touched a lot of the main points across this, to be fair. Lewis Hamilton, I think he made 19 overtakes across the course of the race, which is pretty good going, but again... Yeah, it started... would have been nice if he could have... Like, again, he's been showing really good pace and form over the second half of the season and it was unfortunate what happened to him in this one because he could have been up there fighting them. I don't know if he would have got on the podium or would have got the win, but he would have been in the mix at least and with him in the form that he's in, I want to see him involved at the very least. Um so it would have been would have been interesting, especially if he's having to battle Russell and going to get Stroll and Ocon, you know, you're kind of it's the same thing with signs for this reason. You're seeing drivers out of position that you know should be up there fighting hard for it, even if they're not necessarily going to get on the podium, they're going to be darn close. And yeah, it just was unfortunate that he wasn't able to do that. I would like to know their reasoning behind why they gave Russell a penalty, but yet gave they didn't give Hamilton a penalty for essentially colliding with Piastri. Um we've had both called racing incidents in my mind so i'm like i'm still with you on yeah. the russell thing i don't see why that should have why that warrants it and yeah no i don't understand it either yeah for me they're both racing incidents but i would have thought just due to the outcome it would have been hamilton's and piastri's was a lot worse maybe because hamilton i guess kind of essentially kind of, I guess, got a little bit punished at the fact that he had to go around a whole entire circuit on three wheels. Mm, yeah, he, he lost out by having to do that lap with a puncture and a few other people got a chance to do it differently. So, yeah, it was unique in that regard. We'll move on from anointing some winners and spinners to our predictions review, which was pretty much spinners across the board for a lot of us. No points awarded for pole position. Um, one point to both Timo and Ali May, though, for predicting a Verstappen win. Congratulations on being so bold as to say that much. Um, no points awarded for fastest lap. No points for wild predictions, though. 17 cards did finish, so it's sort of the one over XX over one for Timo's predicting three cars finishing. Um, so, yeah, we, it was not great when it came Could've to predictions. Could have put a bet on that one. I don't know what the odds would have been on 17 cars finishing, but I might have made a fiver. I don't know. I the only bet I put a load of bets on at the end of the preview episode. The only one that I got come out was a safety car. 
so yeah congratulations to me that's why i don't bet very often because i always lose money on it so i never bother um i've got two points and i was on for two points right until leclerc took paris <laughs> i was like oh darn it i did see that i think that's made my day even more now because that was funny enough at the time i just thought you know for how i tried to go i mean maybe my podium wasn't wild but the thought behind it was and I thought, what are the chances of that kind of working out? And then, oh, okay, I'm to That's me done. Shame. Mm. It was a bit more optimistic for some people when it came to our fantasy league, though, with... Um, Teams zero... we didn't even know we had in the league. Yeah, zero shots needed. Gueros and Too Tall, Too Boy, all scoring into the 300-point range. Zero shots needed, 330. Gueros, 316. Too Tall, Too Boy is 315. I believe zero shots needed and Too Tall, Too Boy are my girlfriend's teams, which were sort of picked off very strange arbitrary rules, um, mainly off of shots needed and the height of the drivers involved. So it's surprising that somehow they've panned out as they have. I would like to know who is in her zero shots needed team. Uh, I can go and find out for you. Hang on. So zero shots needed. We have Carlos Sainz, Esteban Ocon, Valtteri Bottas, Lance Stroll, Charles Leclerc. That's an interesting mix. Any further comments about my girlfriend will be redacted from this podcast. I think some shots are needed for some of, for at least one of those drivers, but that's that's personal preference. Yeah, I'd like to have a conversation with her about her choices. I'm sure you'll get an opportunity to make those discussions at a later point in time. When it came to our teams, Jaffa Cake Racing had a pretty decent weekend, actually. P6, EMT Racing P14, and on the curbs, P20. Uh, overall, it is still Alex H9V2 at the top of the league with 6,272 points. Francisco Rhodes with 6,146 points, and Alex H9, uh, 6,010. EMT Racing is still the lead out of us lot in p6 midbeds racing in p12 and on the p11 actually in... oh p11 oh you've missed yeah because i realized i was i was 12th and then realized i must have just missed the two yeah no you're correct midbeds racing is actually in p10 uh jaffa cake racing is p11 on the curbs is p12 so i've got two teams directly ahead of you but a long way short of the really locked racing. in on p12 to be honest i think i'm quite happy where i am um you need to have a, quite a bad Abu Dhabi, and I need to have a pretty good one. It's only 129 points between the two of us, so you could catch me. Yeah, but you need to have a pretty bad race is what I'm saying there. Yeah, I've got Verstappen, Sainz, Russell, Ulkenberg, Piastri, McLaren, If you Ferrari, could just put a freeze in your team by five along with Lawson, that'd be great. I could, but I don't want to. Speaking of putting in pointless drivers, Liam, I love you, still tails at the bottom of the um, the fantasy league with 1,259 points, uh, 34th overall, which puts, uh, given that 33rd is on 2,156 points, it's it's a long way shy. It's about 33rd's going to need a rough race to, for them to, to lose that. Yeah, I don't know what bonuses you could put on to get nearly a thousand points in one race but that's by the by and is brings it us in the... still in 33rd hmm? is it me still in 33rd uh which one was yours in 33rd experiment underdog. underdog yep you are currently in 33rd with ocon ulkenberg Albon, piastri and stroll so very much the underdogs there but mclaren and williams probably over the last few races doing you quite well yeah that's how you secure I... that p33 which is also mad that they were the underdogs at the start of the drivers. 
at the start of the year because I literally did this as well, the bottom makes sense. Jeffrey be a rookie Albon we weren't 100% sure with the Williams and Hulkenberg we weren't sure either because he's coming back in Ocon Ocon yeah it was a, a pretty interesting selection or a clever selection if you're going for the underdogs but anyway that brings us neatly to the end of this week's episode and I'd like to I'd like to bring back the section where we thank the listeners in and I've, I've had a flick around on some of our analytics of where this show goes out to and some of the interesting locations and I've picked out two for this week and um, I'd like to say thank you to our listeners who are enjoying the podcast in Ludwigsburg which is uh, just north of Stuttgart in Germany and an equally warm welcome goes to those who join us in Marionette uh, which is in Wisconsin. Um, your city on the bay, I think, is their tagline. Go Green Bay Packers, I guess. Um, but anyway, with all that said and done, Timo, where can the people find you? You can find me over on, on the curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, Flex Instagram, and Is It Fast, where sometime in the not too distant future there will be an interview with endurance racer Laura and just about anything these days, Samantha Tan. Fantastic. Ellie May, where can the people find you? Um doing my graphics on the Instagram account or on TikTok. Maybe she sounds more and more confident that that's where she's going to be every week. Yeah. Maybe my bed. So it's getting to that winter season. Ellie May goes into hibernation once the final race happens. She sort of bunkers down and we don't see her till spring. I don't like the cold. No, that is... That is plain to be seen in the meantime though you can find me on instagram twitter and tiktok as at jesse on cars and also writing for classic car weekly i can't remember what you're going to be able to ah no if you buy the issue that's coming out next which will be on shop shelves on wednesday um you can read about the time i took my mg to the lake district and uh, had a good old time there with that one so worth picking up just for that so uh, plenty of pretty pictures in there too i saw ccw in the uh newspaper and magazine section of uh, Tesco's today it's out there you can go and buy it and pick up a copy or simply read it and then put it back on the shop shelf it would rather you picked it up and bought it so it gets recorded into our circulation figures but anyway that's all we've got time for this week we'll be back in a couple of days time with a preview for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix